Uh, good morning, church. Uh, today I'm going to read out of Genesis 8 and Genesis 9. So we're going to start off Genesis 8. The flood subside, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made the wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the, wind, the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and, this, uh, and in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of, the four, four, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window and the ark that he had made uh, in the ark, oh, sorry, of the ark that he had made, and sent forth a raven. It went and, and it went to and fro, until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him, to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out from the ark. And the, do- and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the sixth hundred and first year, in the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, and Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the, in the second month, on the 17th, uh, 77th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you, Bring out with you every living thing that's with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moved on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered, uh, offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelt the, the pleasing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the, the earth remains, seed, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the seas. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I have, I have gave you uh, the green plants, I've, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with, with its life, that is its blood. And for, you, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it and f- from man. 
from his fellow man I will require a recognition from the life of man. Whoever shed the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God had made, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the on the on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his and and his sons with him, Behold, I bless, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and. Uh, and with everything, every living creature that is in uh, that is with you, the bird, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you, as many as as many as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall the shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between you, between me and you, and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have sent out my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is, that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again be become a flood and destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it as an end. Remember the everlasting covenant between God and everything, every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Amen. Thanks, Yaku. So, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Lately, we have been going through the book of Genesis together. And last week, we reached Genesis chapter 6, where human evil has spread as far across the world as humanity has spread. And it's infected every part of human life at every moment. God looks out and he sees that the thoughts of men's hearts and their plans that they're making are only evil all the time. And he says, I've got to do something about it. That's enough. So he decides to send a flood that's going to wipe out all life on the earth. But he saves a man named Noah and Noah's family and two of each kind of animal on this ark that floats away during the flood so that they can be saved. And we spent a lot of time discussing this one idea last week, but I want to just repeat it in case you weren't here or in case you've forgotten. God is a loving God. His wrath and anger that were poured out in the flood, they weren't poured out because he's not loving. They actually happened because of his love. As he looked at the earth, he saw the people that he loved being hurt and and harmed and abused and suffering. And he felt the need to step in and stop those were hurting and harming others. But the problem was that the evil in the world at that time was so widespread that if he was gonna wipe out the evil people so that future generations could have a good and lovely life in this world that he made, he had to wipe out everyone so that there was a clean, fresh start. And you can listen to last week's sermon online if you want to learn more about this, but basically the picture that's painted for us in Genesis is that the world was so evil, the world was so messed up that if God hadn't set the flood, if he had just sat back and done nothing, the world was on a path to wiping itself out. So God didn't do anything to the world that the world wasn't already in the process of doing to itself. He just sped up the process a little bit, but he did it so that future generations like you and me 
wouldn't have to live through the evil and the horrible things that were happening during Noah's day. And so last week we saw God sent this flood, but Noah and his family and two of every type of animal were saved from the flood on the ark. And today we're getting to the second half of this flood story. So God sends the flood, wipes out the world, undoes creation itself. And then today we're gonna see him step back in to put everything back together and bring life back onto our planet. And what we'll see today is that God is gracious. We'll see a gracious rescue, a gracious blessing, and a gracious covenant. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it helps us get to know you as a person, not just giving us a series of facts and ideas, but showing us how you actually interact with people in history so that we can know you as a person. And I pray that today during our time together, you would show us who you are as a person so that we can know you as our father and as our friend. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in today's passage is a gracious rescue. We left off last week, the earth was totally covered in water. All life on the planet has been wiped out except for some fish and whoever's on the ark. And there's 40 days of rain, And after the 40 days of rain, Noah and his family have been floating on the ark for 150 more days. And the world is just covered with water. All they can see as they look out the window is water, water everywhere. I mean, if you were in the ark, it would have been really easy to start to wonder, are we ever getting off of this thing? Maybe the world is just going to be covered in water from now on and all life will take place on this little floating zoo. Maybe God forgot about us. Maybe he's just going to let us die on here. You know, we know that God told Noah to build an ark and we know that God told Noah to get him and his family into the ark. And from everything we know from that moment on, God doesn't speak another word to them the entire time they're on the ark until he says to get off. So if you've been floating on this ark for like half a year, no word from God, how tempting would it be to think maybe he forgot about us? Maybe he doesn't care about us anymore. I mean, aren't these things that we felt during COVID quarantine? And we were only in there for one to three weeks. And all the things that made COVID quarantine like bearable for us, they didn't have on the ark no air conditioning, no internet, no Zoom, no Netflix, no video games. I mean, with all that lack of entertainment, it's kind of shocking that Noah wasn't a grandfather when he came off the ark, right? But there was no indication for them of when they'd be able to get out. Like at least with COVID quarantine, we had a date. We knew that it could get changed. We knew that it wasn't set in stone, but we had a target that we could aim for and hope for. They had nothing. They looked out and they saw water and they knew it's not going to be anytime soon. And that was it. And on top of that, they knew that when they got out, if that day ever came, that everything and everyone they had ever known and loved outside this ark is gone. I think it's fair to say that it was much, much worse than what we went through during COVID quarantine. But despite whatever fears they may have had, we see in today's passage that God rescues them. 
Chapter eight starts out with these two words. It says, but God. The world is flooded. There is death everywhere, but God. Noah's family, they're stuck on the ark. They're wondering if they're ever gonna be able to get off, but God. You know, if you're a Christian, these two words, but God, are two of the most incredible words ever. If you fast forward to the New Testament and look at Ephesians chapter two, it, it talks about the state that all of humanity is born into. It says that we are born spiritually dead. It says that we are born allied with Satan against God. It says that we're born just doing what we want to do and telling God, you get off the throne, let me be in charge because I know how to live better than you do. Which anytime the Bible talks about this word sin, that's what it's talking about. The attitude that says, God, you get off the throne, let me be in charge or the actions that flow out of that attitude. And Ephesians 2 says that because of all this, we were all deserving of God's wrath. But then these two words show up, but God. This is how it was. This is what you deserved. But God, he doesn't leave you. He doesn't abandon you. Just like with Noah's family. If you're a Christian, God has stepped into your story to rescue you, to put you on a path of life that you don't deserve. God did it in Noah's day, he does it in our day. He takes those who deserve nothing from him and he decides to bless them in every way possible. And so Noah and his family, God steps in to change their story and bring life and hope. And so with Noah's family, when God steps in, what's, what happens at this transition point? It tells us that God remembered Noah. Now, just to clarify a possible misunderstanding, it's not saying that God had forgotten about Noah and then he was like, oh no, there's a boat out there. I told him to get in and then I just left him there. No, no, that's not what's happening. When the Bible talks about God remembering people, it means he's moving towards them to save them. So God looks at Noah and his family on the boat and he moves towards them to save them. He remembers them. He, he, before the flood, he made a promise to them that he would rescue them. And now he's remembering them by acting to make good on that promise. And this line, God remembered Noah. Actually, if you look at the entire story of the flood, this is the central key thing that, that we're supposed to see and take away from the flood story. So Hebrew writers would often write their stories in such a way that the start and the end lined up with one another. And then part two and the second from last lined up to one another. And it would work its way in to build to this center point that was the main thing that you're supposed to catch from this story. It's sort of like, does anyone like Italian sausage sandwiches? You know, you get your bun and it's on both sides and you maybe put some mustard on this side and some mustard on this side. And then you get some peppers and onions that you put across the middle. And then you put the Italian sausage right there in the middle, right? That's like the showstopper in this meal. That's what it's all about. And so if you look at it from the top, you have bun, mustard, pepper and onion, sausage, pepper and onion, mustard, bun. It, it works its way from the outside in to highlight the thing that everything else is there for, right? And in this passage, in this story of the flood, the thing that it's all pointing towards is God remembered Noah. So when you look at the story of the flood, the thing the writer of Genesis wants you and me to take away is the big thing is not God so angry that he wiped out the world. The thing Genesis wants us to take away 
from this story. The main thing is that God is so loving and so gracious that he rescued a family from the flood and made a way for life to continue on the earth. That's the big main takeaway from the story of the flood. It's not first and foremost a story of anger and judgment. It's first and foremost a story of rescue and salvation. And so how does God bring about this salvation? Well, it tells us that he dries the water from the earth and he does it in a process that parallels his initial act of creation in Genesis 1. So I mentioned last week, the, the flood was this undoing of creation, but now getting the world prepared for life again is a reenactment of creation. So for example, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, God's just made the world and it says, darkness is over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God is hovering over the water. So in Genesis chapter one, verse two, right at the beginning of creation, you have the world surrounded by water and God's spirit is there. And then when you get to Genesis eight, one, you have the world covered in water and it says, God made a wind blow over the earth. That, that Hebrew word for wind is the same word as the Hebrew word for spirit in Genesis one, two. So in both cases, you have the world covered in water and God sends a spirit or wind or breath to start doing work that will make the earth hospitable for humanity again. And it's this slow, gradual process here, but God sees it through all the way. The water slowly recedes until the land is visible again, and then plants begin to grow, and finally things have dried out. The world is ready for human life again. And finally, a year and 10 days after they got on the ark, God says, it's time for you to get out. And aren't you thankful you weren't in COVID quarantine for a year and 10 days? <laughs> Does anyone think they might not have survived? <laughs> but they survived. God rescued them. God sets them free from this floating prison. And even though it probably seemed during many times over the course of that year that their trial would never end, God brings them safely through it. God graciously rescues them. So let me ask you something. Have you ever been in a tough situation or a trial that feels like it will never end? <laughs> Maybe you're in the middle of one now. Have it, has it ever just felt like things are hard and things are gonna be hard and it's never gonna change and that's how life is from now on? The way that God remembered Noah and his family and the way that God saved Noah and his family it's a reminder for us, no matter what we face in life, if God is with us, it's not forever. He has a plan to see you through it. He has a plan to use it for your good. Like students, I know it's, it's just been a crazy stressful season with exams, right? And I think if I'm not wrong, DSC results, do they come out this week? Okay. Three days to go, Wednesday, DSE results come out. Okay, and I know some kids, when they see their DSE results, or maybe you didn't do DSE this year, maybe it's IGCSE or something else. When you see your exam results, if they're not what you were hoping for, it can be tempting to think, my life is over. But if you're tempted to feel that way, remember Noah's family. No matter how bad your grades may be, God has a plan to see you through to safety, to bring good to you, to bring blessing to you, as long as you keep trusting him. It won't necessarily be easy. It might be uncomfortable for a while, but remember those words, but God, if you continue 
trusting in him through this time, he's gonna use it to bless you in the long term, no matter how horrible it might feel right now. So Noah and his family, they wait on God's timing and he graciously rescues them from the flood. But then that's not all that he does for their good. Because once they're rescued, he continues to be gracious to them by graciously blessing them. Now, I want you to think with me. I'm guessing most, if not all of us, at some point during COVID had to be quarantined either because we traveled or because we were close contact or we were positive or our building was locked down or whatever else. I think we probably, almost all, if not all of us, were locked up for some period of time. When you were locked up during COVID, what was the first thing you were excited to do when you got out? Anyone remember? You can shout it out. We'll make it interactive. Walk around, yeah, that's, that's a big one. What? McDonald's? <laughs> Breathe fresh air, yes. I wanted to see my friends. I wanted to go for a run. I wanted to not be in the same room as my children. Oh, I wanted to not be in the same room as my children. I love them. I did not want to be in the same room with them anymore. But Noah, he is different. He's not just different from the people of his world, like we saw last week. He's different from you and me. Because when Noah gets out of the ark, the first thing he does is it tells us he builds an altar and he makes sacrifices to God on that altar. He praises and worships God for bringing him safely through the flood. And the passage tells us that God smelled the sacrifice. And when he does, he says to himself, I'm never going to wipe out all life on the earth again, like I just did. He recognizes humanity is still sinful. The flood gave a reset to the world, but it didn't actually fix the problem inside humanity. That problem is still there, but God is gracious. So he decides to protect human life in the future in a way that he didn't in the flood. But that's not all because then he blesses humanity. He didn't just bring Noah and his family through the flood so he could then leave them to themselves. He brings them to the other side so that he can bless them. Instead of the curse that we all deserve because of the sin inside us, God sends blessing. Not because we're so great, not because we deserve it, but just because he is gracious. And so he speaks a blessing to Noah and his family and this blessing has five parts. First, He tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which is a really interesting thing that on a few different levels. First, it's the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which means God's essentially saying, my plans for humanity haven't changed. Yes, you've done your best to ruin everything and mess it up the best you can. But the thing I want humanity to keep doing is the exact same thing that I've been wanting them to do all along. God still wants people to fill this world that he has made. The second reason this is really, really interesting is that lots of cultures, I don't know if you know this, lots of cultures have stories about an ancient flood. Did you know that? And one of the more famous ones, it comes from Babylon, which Israel had lots of interaction with during their history. They were pretty close by. But in the Babylonian story of the flood, the reason the gods send the flood is because the earth is overpopulated and they need to control the population. And so with the Bible 
It's telling us that God's first command after the flood is make babies and fill the earth. It's actually showing us that our God is wildly different from the other gods of the ancient world. And it's not just that he's different from the gods of the ancient world. Our God is unique. He is different from the other gods that people worship in our world in all the best ways. He's generous and kind, even to the undeserving. He's not just sitting back waiting for us to earn our way to him. He's proactively seeking people out. He's rescuing us from the fate we deserve. He is being gracious. He's giving us blessing. And so this blessing shows God's uniqueness. And then the third reason this is a really interesting blessing is because I'm guessing you can think of many, many people in our world that you know who, if they saw that, would not think blessing, right? Lots of people I know don't want kids. They're like, they're expensive, they're annoying, they take up lots of time, they take up lots of energy. And even if that wasn't all the case, the world is such a messed up place. Who wants to bring kids into this place right now? But it's interesting that every single time kids come up in the Bible, they're always seen as a blessing. Even after the world has gotten so horribly bad that God feels the need to wipe out all human life on earth outside of one family, he still says, bring kids into the world. It's a blessing. It's good. If you fast forward, when Israel's in captivity in a foreign land that's actively working to to indoctrinate them to believe in false uh, false gods, God still says, have kids. It's a blessing to have kids. God wants us to know and believe that kids are a blessing from him. And so if you are someone who doesn't see kids as a blessing, I want to invite you to think about God's blessing to Noah and, and let that challenge the way that you think of kids. So that's the first part of God's blessing to them, a command to be fruitful and multiply. Now, the second part of God's statement, it's part blessing, part reminder of the brokenness that's currently in the world. In chapter nine, verse two, he says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. And then he lists out all the different types of animals that will fear and dread humanity. Now, this is a blessing because in the beginning, humanity had a place of authority over the animals, and we still have some level of, of leadership or a position that they look up to. Even the animals that can kill us with a single venomous bite, they fear us. Right? The other day, I was going for a hike with a friend, and as we were getting onto the trail, we passed this guy coming the other, day, other way, and he was like, oh, you guys, I don't know if you'll be fast enough, but if you get there quick, Right before this first village that you pass on the trail, I just saw a beautiful king cobra on the side of the trail. Now I'm guessing some of you might've been like, okay, time to head home. This was a nice hike right at that moment. But my friend and I, we weren't scared. We weren't nervous. We were actually kind of excited. And you know why we weren't scared of possibly running into such a venomous snake on our path? Because king cobras are terrified of people. If they sense that you're coming and they have a way to get away, they run away as fast as they can because they're afraid of people. They can kill us with a bite, but they don't want to. They just want to stay away from us. The fear of us and the dread of us is on all the animals and that keeps us safe, which is a blessing. But then this blessing, it's also a reminder of the world's brokenness because the initial design was for humans to have authority over the animals, but for us to be able to work together in peace and harmony as a team. The fact that they now fear us and dread us makes it really hard, sometimes impossible, 
for us to work together with them as a team. And even when things do go right, all it takes is the smallest thing going wrong for it to all fall apart in terms of our interaction with animals. So there's a blessing that they fear us and, and we are kept safe by that. But then there's also a reminder that the world is a broken place and things don't work like they're supposed to. Third, God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Which again, part blessing, part reminder of the world's brokenness. The blessing, we can eat meat. Is anyone else excited about that? Like think about it, burgers and bacon and sushi and Korean fried chicken, none of them were on the menu in the Garden of Eden. None of them were allowed to be eaten. This is the first time the Bible says humanity can eat meat. And we all say, thank you, God. (laughs) But again, this blessing comes with a reminder that the world is broken. Because in a perfect world, the animals are our teammates. They're such great teammates, we would never dream of killing one of them to eat it. Right? The picture in Genesis 1 is that humanity is supposed to be like kings and queens ruling over creation, and no good king or queen would ever dream of eating their subjects. Right? Like that's just not how the world works when things are going properly. The fact that it's now normal and common for us to eat meat shows us the world has gone very, very wrong. And notice God puts a restriction on eating meat as well. He says in verses three and four, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Think back to the Garden of Eden. How did God give them green plants for food? He gave it generously and abundantly, but with one restriction. He said, any of these trees, any of these plants, you can eat whatever grows on them except one. There's one tree. You cannot eat the fruit from that tree. The day that you do, you will die. And he didn't make this restriction because he's mean or cruel or vindictive. He made it because human life works best when God is at the center of it. And having one place where we need to obey God reminds us to constantly keep God at the center of our existence. And so he says, he's giving meat for food, just like he gave the green plants, which means he's giving meat generously and abundantly. But again, we see one restriction. You can eat anything that moves, but you cannot eat the blood. Again, it's a reminder that God is at the center of life. God Ultimately, all life belongs to him. We're not animals who, you know, like stab a deer and then just rip right in with our teeth while the blood's still flowing before it's gotten cold. No, we're human. And as such, we're called to respect life, all life, even the lives of the creatures we eat out of respect for the giver of life. So that's the third part of God's speech, this gift of meat. Fourth, God gives protection for human life. And again, blessing and brokenness. The blessing, God says that despite how much we have messed up and despite how horrible the world has gotten, his image that he gave us at the beginning in creation still remains in us. And because his image still remains in us, he's going to protect us. He's going to put a ban on anyone killing us. So that's a blessing. He's going to avenge people who kill other people. But then it's also a reminder of the world's brokenness because we actually need this command in the first place. We now live in a world where people kill people. We live in a world where people need to have threats in order to keep them from killing other people. We have this blessing that God will protect and preserve human life, but a reminder of the brokenness of the world because it actually needs that protection. 
And then fifth, we see a repetition of number one. You, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. God really wants them to get to work filling the world. And so he repeats it again. He's reminding them the goal of the flood, it's not to limit the human population. It's to prepare the world so future generations can live in peace and safety. So once humanity leaves the ark, God blesses them. And that's really important for us to understand today. When you think of God, what do you think he's like? You don't have to put your hands up, but just think to yourself, do you think of God as stingy? Withholding? Just always angry, ready to be set off at the slightest little trigger? Do you think of God as just a cosmic killjoy who wants to keep us from having fun? These aren't the pictures the Bible gives us of God. He wants good for us. He's a God of abundance. He's a God of blessing. Yes, sometimes he gets angry, yes. But even then, he's slow to anger. And even his anger is driven by his love and his desire to bless. He is a God who blesses, a God who protects, a God who proactively seeks our good. And that leads us to the third gracious thing we see God do in today's passage. He gives a gracious covenant. In chapter nine, verse eight, God said to Noah and his sons with them, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and all the living creatures are with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the world. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a deeply personal but legally binding promise, commitment. And it's actually more deeply personal because of the fact that it's legally binding. So I think the clearest picture of this in today's world is marriage. In marriage, you're making a deeply personal promise to the other person to stay with them for life. But it's also a legally binding pro promise. Like your legal status towards one another changes because you have made this promise. But it's not that, oh, it's got the legal side, so it's now cold and stale and lifeless and horrible. It's actually more deeply personal because the legal side of it is attached to it, right? The legal side gives you safety and protection so that you can get to know the other person more deeply from a place of, of trust and safety. The legal side is meant to give you the ability to go deeper in your relationship that you wouldn't have if that legal side didn't exist. And so God makes a covenant, a deeply personal but legally binding promise to Noah and his family and every living thing. And he promises in this covenant, like we just saw, to never destroy all flesh by waters of the flood again. Never again will he send a flood to destroy the earth. Yes, there are still floods in our world today, but they're all regional, they're smaller. They, they affect one part of the world so that people from other parts of the world can come in and help them. They aren't floods that wipe out everyone on earth at the same time. Never again will there be a flood like the one that Noah and his family survived. Even though human hearts haven't magically improved as a result of the flood, he's not gonna do the same thing to us as he did before. And in verse 12, 
God tells Noah about the sign of the covenant. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. Now, before we look at that sign itself, something really fascinating, really interesting. I had never learned this before, but I discovered it this week in my research. If you look at chapter nine, verse eight, it says, God said to Noah and his sons with him, and then it gives you the speech that God gave, and then no one else speaks. And then in verse 12, it says, and God said. Now, why does it need to reintroduce God speaking here? If no one else has interrupted him, if no one else has said anything, why does it tell us again that God is speaking? Well, there's a commentator named Robert Alter. We have a quote from him. He says, when this happens, when someone is speaking and saying something and no one says anything, and then it reintroduces the main speaker again, it generally indicates some sort of significant silence, a failure to comprehend, a resistance to the speaker's word and so forth. So here, God first flatly states his promise never to destroy the world again. The flood-battered Noah evidently needs further assurance, so God goes on with a second formula for introducing speech to offer the rainbow as the outward token of his covenant. So God basically says to Noah, I'm never going to destroy the world by a flood again. And Noah, the, the greatest guy in the world at his time, who constantly throughout this story, again and again, every time God says something, Noah is like, all right, I'm going to do it. And he obeys completely. That Noah, God shows up. He's like, I promise never to destroy the world by a flood again. And Noah's just like, can't believe it. And so God speaks again to give him greater reassurance that this is true so that he can accept it and really believe it. Does anyone else find that reassuring? Like someone as great as Noah could still need that type of reassurance. Can anyone else relate to him? Just needing a little more reassurance, a little more reassurance, God. And yet how great is it that God has given us his word and his son to reassure us? You know, the Bible is full of stories again and again and again, where God keeps his promises and does what he said he would do. And he has them recorded for us in the Bible so that we can be reminded of his faithfulness when we're tempted to doubt it. When we read the Bible and we see a promise of God and we're like, God, I don't know that I really believe you're gonna keep this promise. He's recorded an entire book full of him keeping his promises. So that when we're in doubt, we can open up and be like, oh yeah, he made this promise to Noah and he's kept that so far. Maybe he really will keep his promise to me. And if that's not enough, he's also given us his son, Jesus, God in human flesh who died for us and rose again as the ultimate proof that God really will keep all his promises, that he will do everything he promises to do for us. Just like he did with Noah, God understands our weaknesses. He understands our doubts. He understands our struggles to believe and he gives us exactly what we need to be able to believe him. And so for Noah, God made the promise. Noah wasn't quite sure about it. And so God completely on his own initiative, well, first the promise was completely on God's own initiative. But then when Noah doesn't quite believe it, God again on his own initiative gives a reminder of that promise. And this isn't necessarily the first rainbow that ever existed on earth, but from this moment on, rainbows have a new significance. It's a reminder of the promise that God gave to us. 
And did you notice who it's a reminder for? Verse 15 tells us and verse 16 tells us again, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, who will remember? I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. So the rainbow, it's not a reminder for us of this covenant because it's a completely unconditional covenant. There's nothing we can do to keep it or make it come true. The rainbow is a reminder for God. But again, God doesn't forget. God doesn't need reminders. So why would he give himself a reminder if he doesn't need them? It's because he's reminding himself so we can be reassured. Because he's not gonna forget the promise. He's not gonna doubt whether he's gonna keep his word, but we will. So he gives himself this reminder that we can see. And every time we see the rainbow, we can be reminded God remembers his promise. He's going to keep it. Isn't he kind and generous to us? And the sign of the covenant, some translations say it's a a rainbow, but in Hebrew, it just says the bow that is preserved in the ESV. You heard that in our reading today, our scripture reading, he sets his bow in the clouds, which is a little ironic, isn't it? Because the bow is a weapon of war. And God's using it as a sign that he will give the earth undeserved peace. So how can that be? How can God use a sign of war to give the earth peace? Well, think about all the rainbows you've ever seen in your life. Which way are they pointing up or down? Are they pointing up or down? They're always pointing up, right? It's almost like God has structured the sign of this covenant to say, I will make sure this happens. If I ever unleash my anger again and my bow goes off, the arrow that's getting unleashed, it's not flying down towards you. It's flying straight up towards me. But that leaves God with a problem, doesn't it? Because he's still just. He still needs to do what's right. He still needs to punish sin. And the flood has not wiped out human sin. It just set its effects back a little bit. And God's love for humanity, his justice, requires him to do something to deal with the evil of the world. So how can he keep that promise not to unleash his anger on us while still dealing with human sin and staying just? And I think that bow gives us a little hint because he's essentially saying, if my anger is gonna be unleashed, it's being unleashed on me, not you. And in the Bible, where do we see the full wrath of God towards human sin unleashed? We see it on the cross where God himself in human form comes and bears that wrath of God against sin without you and me needing to go through another flood. Jesus comes, he he takes the anger and wrath of God that you and I deserve so that you and I can go free. And God's promise is that if we trust in Jesus and his sacrifice for us, we can escape God's anger against sin once for all. That that bow is never gonna hit us. He's gonna take our place so we can go free. Church, God is gracious. Even in the midst of his wrath and anger, his primary goal is to rescue and bless. 
He brought Noah's family and the animals with them safely through the flood so he could bless them. And he wants to give you today a blessing. New life with him. Rescue from the consequences of, the sin, of your sin that you deserve. So will you trust in him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God who rescues, who blesses, who makes and keeps promises. God, that's far more than we deserve from you. But we praise you for it. We pray that you would give us faith to trust in you, that you give us hearts to just understand more deeply each day who you are and how you love us. Teach us to trust in you and follow you and and find the freedom that you want to give us through you. And in Jesus' name, amen.